0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few minutes, you'll meet photographer William Lozano, who will be happy to answer your questions and mine about all the latest photography technology and techniques. And there's a lot to catch up with. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Another vehicle retail, recall rather, to tell you about this week, and this time it's from Hyundai Kia, who are recalling nearly a million and a half cars in Canada and the States, due to engine issues that could cause failures and stalls and increase the risk of crashes. Over 114,000 of these vehicles are here in Canada. The recall could cost the two companies hundreds of millions each and raises quality concerns at a time when both Hyundai and Kia are looking at a sharp drop in sales in China and sluggish demands here in North America and at home in South Korea. This recall covers some of the automaker's most popular models in including... 2013 and 2014 Hyundai Santa Fe Sports SUVs and Sonata cars also covered are Kia Optima cars from 2011 through 14, Kia Sportage SUVs from 2011 through 13, and Kia Sorento SUVs from 2012 through 2014. Hyundai and Kia will notify owners, and dealers will inspect the engines. They'll replace the engine block, if needed, at no cost to the owners. The recall is scheduled to start on May 19th. If you own one of those vehicles and haven't heard from the manufacturer yet, it's because they're not quite ready to go about a month from now and things should start arriving in mailboxes. The company says it has no reports of crashes or injuries. Together, Hyundai and its smaller affiliate, Kia, are the world's fifth largest car makers. It's becoming a weekly ritual on this program to tell you about yet another big retail player in serious trouble. And this week is no exception. It seems like every mall has at least one pay-less shoe source, but the chain is about to become a little less ubiquitous. It filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the States this week and plans to close 400 of its 4,000 stores. The plan is now to go through the Chapter 11 process, reorganize, and stay in business. While Payless has plenty of cash flow and thousands of stores, it turns out that a company that big, operating in dozens of countries, also has a lot of big subsidiaries, and they are a major part of dragging the company into debts estimated to run into the billions. Here's a startling fact. It's only early April, and already there are more retail bankruptcies so far than all of last year. Most companies now filing for bankruptcy were saddled with debts from previous buyouts by private equity firms during previous retail downturns. As many analysts point out, listen, it's just about too much. The CEO over at Urban Outfitters, a guy named Richard Hain, nailed it when he said malls added way too many stores in recent years, and way too many of them are selling the same thing. This created a bubble which has now burst. Doors are shuttering and rents retreating. This trend will continue for the foreseeable future and may even accelerate. Close quote. Unfortunately, he's right, and the idea of pursuing a career in retail now involves a whole lot more than just being a people person. Strategic thinking will be a top quality employers will seek out. That and a cast-iron stomach. Do you have unexpected warning lights and costly car repairs? I know, I know, don't we all? Sure, but a new class-action lawsuit in California pinpoints a new problem for car owners. Rats. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, rats. The target company named in the suit is Toyota. And the lawyer behind it all says in their zeal to green up their products... Toyota went to an eco-friendly, soy-based product to shield or cover all the wiring in their vehicles. Well, apparently rats just love that soy, and they happily chew through the wire coating and some insulation products too. Toyota says rodent damage to vehicle wiring occurs across the industry, and the issue is not brand or model specific. And to that extent, the L.A. lawyer behind the lawsuit agrees, pointing to both Ford and Subaru, as other makers likely to have used the same process. So what do the plaintiffs want? They want the car makers to cover the costs of repairs to rat-chewed car parts, of course. Neither warranties nor most car insurance plans cover rodent damage currently. But the word is, some home insurance plans may provide coverage. And if this is a problem in your life too, check with your insurance provider, because you may find some relief, surprisingly. There are many things you can do to annoy fellow flyers, but carrying around a fake explosive device in your suitcase and forcing a flight to be delayed for hours is guaranteed to ruin everyone's day and a good way to end up in jail. I was at Pearson Airport in Toronto on Thursday waiting for a flight home to Vancouver when I got a text asking if I was okay because there was a bomb scare at American Airlines. I had just passed through security and all was pretty routine, so I replied, I'm okay. And jumped on my phone for a news search and found out U.S. Customs agent had discovered a fake bomb in a passenger suitcase earlier that morning in a pre-clearance search. Passengers on that plane were held on the plane for three hours before the plane was evacuated for more security checks. And then once the security checks were run, they all had to go through re-screening before they could finally take off at least six hours late. The passenger with the fake bomb was arrested and charged with mischief. mischief rather. So far, there may be more. And there's no comment at all from United Airlines. Full passenger marks to the people at Pearson Airport for running as much much of the airport as they could and did without interruption. In this time of uncertainty for travelers, it's important airports stay calm. And for the most passengers at Pearson that day, the consumer experience was as normal as any other day. Our flight left on time in the pounding rain and we were just relieved the delay happened to another group. And now here's a story for those who enjoy heading to English Bay for a few nights each summer to enjoy the fireworks. You may appreciate this. This one from the happiest place on earth. Yes, we're talking Disney World in Orlando, Florida, where a woman from Michigan is accused of choking a teenage girl during a fireworks show because the girl and her friends were blocking the woman's and her family's view. After the show started, the kids stood up to enjoy it. Surprise, surprise. The woman and her family were sitting behind them and insisted they sit down. According to the cops, the woman became aggravated, so the girls decided to move, telling the family behind them, you can have our spot. Well, somehow that remark was delivered or taken the wrong way because that's when the mom apparently wraps both hands around the girl's neck and begins to choke her, saying, you don't want to mess with me. The Michigan mom was arrested on a charge of felony child abuse. Beyond the obvious Disney dilemma, this is not a big plus for Orlando tourism. And you have to ask, how do you block off a view of a fireworks show? look up for crying out loud. How much of the sky do you need? Interesting how with over a quarter million folks each night gathered for those three nights every summer here, we don't hear many stories like this one. More likely to hear about liquor pour outs and traffic congestion than confrontations between women in the crowd. And let's try to keep it that way. Okay. People come from everywhere for this show. Now it's a moneymaker for our city. And by the way, this summer, Japan leads off July 29th, followed by the UK August 2nd, and Canada wrap things up on August 5th. Those are some of the stories we're following this week. We'll look at a few more later on in the show. We'll also have a steel report, and today looks at the expansion. Linda, rather, will talk about the Robin Hood flower recall expansion. That's coming up a little later on. In a couple of minutes, stay with us. Our phone lines will be open to William Lozon on All Matters Photographic here on Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back. It's 1117, a bit of a cloudy Sunday morning, nice and mild, however, in downtown Vancouver. Sterling Fox with you on Vancouver Consumer, joined by William Lozon, who is a photographer from the White Rock area, who is, uh, well, starting a photography business. William, uh, welcome to Vancouver Consumer. Nice to have you here on CKNW.
2: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
1: Well, it's good to have you with us, and you are uh, light years ahead of me when it comes to matters photographic. And open, <laughs> open up the phone lines. Chris has already released the phones. So 604-280-9898. Lots of people like to take pictures, and lots of people like to stay on top of what's what's going on, want to be the you know uh, gadgets and gizmos. And photography, William, is one of those industries and one of those hobbies and pastimes in which there is literally no end to the supply of new gadgets and gizmos.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's always a, a big conversation on social media and everywhere about what's the new gear and where's things going next and uh, it's definitely a big topic for sure.
1: Social media. Now, you have a Facebook page which is where you do a lot of your own promotion and advertising. There is a website, friends, lozon L-A-U-Z-O-N, L-A-U-Z-O-N. Uh, that's, uh, that's William's official business site where you post testimonials from happy customers and mm-hmm. some of your work as well. Right. But uh, social media has changed even the sport, the hobby of photography, hasn't it?
2: Right, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of sharing that goes on, uh, especially back in the film days, which I didn't personally experience because I'm too young. But. Uh uh, it was hard to to share your photos to a lot of people, but now with a couple clicks, uh, you can get your photos to thousands of different people. Uh, and it's very interesting. There's a lot of different Facebook groups that I'm in to do with photography, and uh, you see a lot going on there, and a lot of tips and techniques you can gain from social media as well. I'm sure. What are the platforms
1: that you use the most or go to the most? Uh, Facebook is is it, it's popular. It used to be more popular among younger people. Since uh, old people discovered Facebook, uh, younger people have moved on. So where do you go?
2: Right. Well. There, there is one kind of specific photography-related social media, which is called Flickr. Okay. Uh, a lot of people do use that. Uh, I think it's dying off a little bit more uh, now, though. Uh, a lot of people, to be honest, still do use Facebook for photos. It, At least as of a couple of years ago when I did some research on this, it was still the uh, the social media with the largest uh, amount of photos on it. Oh, I believe that. Even even more than Instagram. People use it a lot, especially when they're sharing albums of photos. And it's a much better platform for discussion than than something like Instagram is for photos. So it is very commonly used uh, to, to share photos. Is
1: that because there's more room for discussion on Facebook than Instagram, which is mostly about content rather than than chatter?
2: Right, yeah, absolutely. Instagram's always had the focus on the content, and even in the design of their app, um, especially recently, they designed it to be completely white all around, and just the photo's nice and big in the middle, and you have to click to expand to see the comments and all that kind of thing. Whereas on Facebook, there's really an equal emphasis on the photo itself and the discussion below. On Facebook, uh, you can reply to comments and like comments, a feature which Instagram only recently got. So a lot of discussion goes on there, and you can really gain a lot of uh, techniques through Facebook. So sure.
1: you belong to groups of uh, photography nuts, for right. lack of a better uh, phrase. Right. Uh, and, and you exchange information about the latest techniques and technologies yeah. all the time, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And what's going on these days? What's hot right now in in photography now that we're well into 2017?
2: Well, I think a lot of things that are really uh, emerging is is in the post-processing of your images, um, composite images. So you might take one uh, image in front of a a blank wall or something and then another uh, image of a beautiful sunset Mm -hmm. and kind of juxtapose those. That's a common trend uh, I've seen rather than trying to take them all together in one shot. That's something I've definitely... uh, seen developing and the use of Photoshop and those kind of things is, is really uh, coming on strong.
1: And, and, of course, Photoshop, there's a magic word nowadays because, <laughs> I mean, every person with a computer can, can do Photoshop. Absolutely. And, and there are multiple program options even to, to find out uh, what sort of Photoshopping you want to do. Some mm-hmm. of them are pretty complex. Now, you're a professional photographer. What sort, what's, what's your favorite Photoshop go-to platform?
2: Well, there's a there's a division of Photoshop almost called Photoshop Lightroom. It's its own um, software, but it is called Photoshop Lightroom. And it's really meant for um, event photographers and high volume photographers uh, where you can sort through your images and do uh, quite an advanced degree of editing. Um, and then from there, if you need to go into into actual uh, full Photoshop to do other edits, you can do it there. Um, but, yeah, I definitely use Lightroom um, for the most part, and it's my go-to program for editing.
1: Okay. Uh, we had a little chance to have a brief chat before we began this conversation actually in front of witnesses. <laughs> and, and, William, you, you mentioned earlier the era of film uh, in photography. Precedes you primarily. Mean, you were around, but you were pretty small when the people were still using 35 mil film. Yeah, and yeah. yet, it, William reminded me, and I'm, I was surprised by this, when it comes to wedding photography, and you do a fair bit of that, there are many instances where the bride, who usually has the last word, will request. A filmed wedding uh, on rather than um, a wedding shot on film rather than digital. What would be the reason for that?
2: Right. Absolutely. So that that does. I have heard that um, happen. It hasn't happened to myself, but to uh, a number of other professional photographers. And primarily it's because um, the brides like kind of the purity and and the look that you get from the film. Um, There's there's a certain characteristic of the grain uh, and the colors of different kinds of film uh, that certain people really want to emulate. And the situation, usually that's the issue with that, is that film is is so far behind in the technological uh, realm of things, which is really, you need to have good technology in your cameras to shoot a wedding, especially if you're in a a dimly uh, lit church, for example. Which happens a lot. Yes, it would be difficult to shoot that with film, whereas our digital cameras can capture that much more easily. So what a lot of photographers say is, you know what, I'll shoot it in digital, you'll get much better results, and what I can do is I can emulate the film look afterwards and you won't even be able to tell the difference. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Ah, Rather than shooting it simultaneously in both digital and and the old film. You see, I relate to this conversation from a musical point of view, uh, because there's analog and digital recording techniques for music, and a lot of people, including myself, prefer the old tape recording rather than the digital, simply because of what I call the warmth of the sound, I can't put my finger on it in terms of a technical uh, technical adjective, it just has a different feel to it, right. and I guess that's why film, in a visual way, has the same effect on people.
2: Right, yeah, it does, there is of course that feel that they look for, but uh, at least in my opinion, just the disadvantages of using it from the technical po- point of view, don't uh, don't make, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to use film, it's just, you would miss so many shots, and if, for example as well, a lot of photographers in a wedding will take around four thousand different digital images, right? And if uh, a roll of film is is thirty six shots, that's a whole lot of rolls of film. That's a whole lot of cost. Uh, and switching film out every thirty six shots, you know, I switch out my SD cards every twelve hundred shots. Oh my! Okay. So you would even miss you even miss shots there. It's just. I think just emulating it and having it high quality, but emulated to look like film, I think that's really just the best solution at this point.
1: And weddings in 2017 uh, also involve uh, it used to be just the still photographer. That was the way weddings were shot. Right. But now it's very commonplace to have video, a full video of the whole thing with the music and the vows and all of that stuff. Uh, while the, the, it's being shot in video, live, there's also a still photographer doing the old still stuff. So people end up with both formats after the ceremony.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, People, a lot of the time, they want video nowadays to capture. You can capture the movement, of course, uh, that relates to the emotion of the moment, and then photographs are great for putting on the wall, making books and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you definitely um, do have both. And often it's two different uh, companies that are operating. Some photographers have uh, a videography uh, division, but most don't. So it's usually two different companies. And you hear all these horror stories on these Facebook groups that I am a part of, that the photographer gets in the way of the videographer, the videographer gets in the way of the photographer. And all of a sudden you have this this person with this big camera in in your photo or in your video shot. So it's definitely a little bit of a, a crazy uh, orchestration. But, yeah, the uh, the bride and the groom want everything they can get nowadays to document their day, which they
1: should. Absolutely. So. How much more expensive is it? Now, suppose they you were hired to shoot stills at a wedding. And so you have a set fee for that, based, I assume, on the number of, of, of final pictures that they, they request. Right. But how much extra would it cost to throw in that video dimension on top of the traditional still photographer at any given wedding? It's sort of a ballpark number.
2: Usually, it's if you're looking at how much it's going to cost you for a photographer, it's going to cost you the same or more to add on a videographer. Okay. Um, for example, a, a wedding photographer um, fully equipped, ready to go, the gear could cost about fifteen to twenty thousand um, dollars in total. Whereas a, a videographer, one of their cameras can cost upwards of $20,000. Right. Okay. So uh, their gear costs, even there, are much more expensive. Um, and, and yeah, so it can at least double the cost if you'd like to add a videographer on.
1: Okay. So, so uh, basically in terms, you see, I ask, I ask these wedding questions because we're coming up to spring. And of course, June is the biggest month of the year uh, for weddings. And are you booked already? Are you booked for June? Do you have any room left in your calendar?
2: I, I do have some room, yeah. I, I'm mainly, uh, I have some uh, family portraits scheduled and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, weddings for the most part, um, not so much uh, yet. At this point, right now, I don't have a go to um, second shooter as much for those larger size weddings. Okay. Um, so I kind of stick to the smaller uh, weddings kind of thing. But uh, yeah, family portraits for sure are also a, a big topic coming up in the spring and the summertime.
1: So ideally, though, if the bride and groom, just to pursue this for a couple more seconds, right. because I'm hoping, I have my fingers crossed, you'll notice. Uh, I'm hoping to have to deal with one of these events in my own life personally with okay. a family member here in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, so, and of course, they're costing everything. out. Everything costs and so you want to yeah, know. Yeah. So, uh, and also coordination sounds kind of important. So if you want to do a, f- a still photographer as everyone does, but you also want to add on the video dimension, it would be helpful if these two people actually knew each other and could work together cooperatively so you wouldn't get uh, the other guy's <laughs> camera in your shot kind yeah, of thing.
2: Yeah, I, I think so for sure. And just making sure that you pick um both people with a very professional attitude and and that they can respect the photographer can respect the videographer and vice versa uh, if there's that mutual respect there then then you shouldn't have any issues with them getting in the way of each other that kind of thing they'll look out for that
1: William so. Lozon is our guest Mr. Lozon is a photographer from White Rock his website is williamlozon.com and we'll be back with plenty more right after the news here on Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW And we're back for Sunday morning with William Lozon, photographer from White Rock, our guest today on Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox. Nice to have you with us. Phone lines are wide open. Where are those hobbyist photographers all over Metro Vancouver? Oh, they're probably out taking pictures of birds and such right now, but if you have any questions for our friend, Mr. Lozon, who is right there in the trenches uh, every day, uh, uh, starting up a new business, and certainly on the cutting edge of all the latest gizmos and gadgets and whatnots, the lines are open at 601 Four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. I was looking over, trying to find out uh, uh, stuff to catch up to you with because you're just so far ahead of me. I'm a, a very casual photographer, uh, and, and I just take pictures. Cameras. How much has cameras? I was going to ask you. I got a new phone for Christmas, and so that's the, the, my new thing: was taking pictures, better pictures with a better phone with a better camera. How much has cameras? Cut into a photography in a negative way. I suspect in a positive way, it's been huge. Has it been? Have there been any negative consequences of so many people taking pictures all the time?
2: I think um, not so much that so many people are taking pictures. I think the sometimes the the more people that are getting educated and teaching themselves uh, is the better. Um, but I think for sure an issue that comes. Uh, to mind is that a lot of people focus too much on the gear and not enough on actually shooting a lot of people will sit at their computer looking at all the different the sony website and the nikon website and the canon website and nikon rumors and canon rumors and seeing what's coming out what can i shoot with next sure and then not actually shooting with everything else that that they have that they were obsessing over before so it's, it's definitely a, a thing that we sometimes have to be reminded it is a lot of cool technology and it's okay to be interested in that for sure but we have to remember what that technology is actually for, and to actually uh, get out and, and, and shoot and not just uh, look at what's coming out next.
1: Where do you go to learn techniques? You've never taken a, a, a proper uh, photography program. No. You, you've, you're you self-taught. You hang out on the internet with all of these different groups, and you exchange ideas and thoughts and techniques. Where, is that where you learn most about how to how to take fantastic pictures?
2: Well, most of the, the kind of ground-level learning that I started off with uh, was on YouTube, and uh, there's a huge camera store. Oh, you uh, mean technique
1: videos? Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah, there's a huge camera store uh, in, in New York called B&H, and they actually uh, get a bunch of different professional photographers in and do uh, different seminars, and they're very educational, and they're usually about an hour or two in length, and I just watched uh, seminar after seminar of those when I was uh, trying to really develop my skills in grade eight and grade nine and all of that, um, and then I got kind of got a great uh, ground-level understanding from that. And then a lot of the education came from experience. So I shot a lot of photos at my school, uh, Christmas concert, commencement ceremonies. Wherever you could. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sports games, uh, different portraits. At at a school, there's so many different things going on that you can really get a lot of great experience. And if
1: you're willing to volunteer to take all the, they just love you to death, don't they?
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It works perfectly both directions. Sure. So I got my ground level through YouTube, uh, developed my skills uh, through shooting at my school. And then uh, these kind of uh, smaller things that you add on and the subtleties, uh, I learn a lot through these Facebook groups uh, with other professional photographers and take a look at their work, see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's both conversation with them about their techniques and how they did certain things and then as well just looking at their photos and uh, looking at the posing of, of the model um, or looking at where they decided to frame uh, the mountain and the trees in a particular landscape photo and uh, so yeah and then you just learn little techniques from there as well
1: interesting one of the things that you said uh, you uh, you're, you're developing a business and and you know it, it's a kind of for a lot of people it's a hobby that could become a business. You know, maybe I I just keep working at this through my working career, and then maybe when I retire... I'll become a semi-professional photographer. I'll take a few pictures for a few bucks. Uh, but you would like to, uh, given in a perfect world, you would very much like to uh, become a professional photographer full-time. But when you go to university next year, uh, you're not going to take a photography course. You're going to take a commerce course because, well, you know, this photography thing is pretty intense competition, isn't there?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I see a lot on the Internet that um, people kind of uh, – Recommend well, um, recommend that you go to university for commerce or for business uh, more so than photography. Um, uh, business is definitely a huge aspect of photography, and that's why it's really important to learn those techniques. And then all the photography can come through um, the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, or
1: seminars kn- or smaller yes. catch-up uh, programs, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, universities aren't always uh, regarded as the most forward-thinking institutions and the most up-to-date on everything. Um, it's a, They're a bit more traditional often. Um, and the internet really is, of course, the most forward-thinking and the most up-to-date. And that's really the place where you can uh, learn so much about photography and, and the newest techniques and all that and get your, your business understanding and how to really operate a full business uh, through what you learn at university.
1: Do you have any heroes, any people who, who you emulate not only as artists and their... Their incredible ability to capture a moment in a photograph but also who have made a career of it successfully
2: you know there's there's so many people now with the digital age there's so many different photos that i see that it's hard to to think of one person but okay. um One person, when I was talking about that ground-level learning on YouTube, uh, was Jeff Cable, um, who's a photographer and the uh, marketing director at Lexar. And I'm really into um, marketing and design myself, in addition to photography. And his role really showed me that those two things go together very well. You can think about um, the eye that you have um, for things that look good as a photographer. works really well uh, in being uh, a marketing director and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So he's where I learned a lot of... um, a lot of the different techniques from, through those B&H videos from uh, Jeff Cable. And then also he's an Olympic photographer, so I learned lots of sports photography. So he's kind of someone I've always um, looked up to and uh, been interested in in the career path that he chose. What's the hardest subject to shoot, William? Little kids? You know what? Little kids are actually not too hard to shoot, as long as uh, you're shooting a digital and you can take a million pictures. Okay, (laughs) right, right. Because they move around a lot, but they're almost... Well, I mean, sometimes they cry, but for a lot of the time when they're having fun, you can see and they're very happy and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, events are challenging at times, but it's really not too bad. What can be most difficult for sure is is portraits because a portrait is such a, uh, a personal representation of an individual. And depending on the way you pose them and the lighting you do and all that kind of thing and their facial expression, you really have to work very closely with the client to make sure you're getting what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, because since it's so personal, it's so easy for them to be, uh, a little bit unhappy with the photo, even though the next person, if you did exactly the same posing and lighting and everything, that would, they would love it. So it is difficult in the way that you have to be very connected to uh, to the client to get a great result.
1: Uh, isn't it beautiful, though, with digital uh, that you, you don't have to wait until it's developed or you can ro- show some negatives <laughs> and, oh, I don't want that. I want yeah. That's not going to go on my business card yeah. uh, or, or on the masthead. So at least there's instant feedback. And if the client is dissatisfied with the look, okay, we'll just go back over there and Sit down and get comfortable. I'll take a few more.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. When I'm in my uh, in home studio, I actually, uh, connect my camera directly to my computer. And then on the big screen right there, I can show them exactly what's going on. I can zoom in and show them the different intricacies of the lighting and all that kind of thing. And we can work together to discuss uh, how to get the exact product that we're looking for.
1: And you do family and corporate portrait work. Yes. And that's two really, I mean, it sounds the same, but it's really two different ball games, isn't it?
2: Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the corporate work, uh, pretty much all of it happens in a studio environment or an emulated studio, which is when I would bring a backdrop and lights to an office. Mm -hmm. Uh, or it could be in my in-home studio and that uh, typically has a gray background or a white background and that kind of thing. Um, family portraits, they almost all happen outdoors. Uh, there's actually a specific location if anybody needs one. It's Blackie Spit Park in South Surrey. Oh, and down at it Crescent Beach there? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, It's it's beautiful at sunset. You have some views of of the mountains and the water, uh, sun streaming through the trees, and that is my go-to location for family portraits. It also has nice wood fences and, and tall grass, and that's always uh, where I do the family portraits when things don't have to be so formal um, as the in-studio corporate shots.
1: So you go for that kind of rustic, outdoorsy setting there. Yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been uh, common in the past for family portraits to take place in a studio with a white backdrop, that kind of thing. Oh, sure, yeah. But I think being outdoors really allows it to look a bit more natural and a bit more um, kind of like this is actually what happens in these people's lives. Oftentimes, if I'm doing a, a photo shoot at a park, I'll just ask the family to um, to walk together or if there's kids for them to play together and I'll just kind of stay on the perimeter and, and capture photos of the true moment there uh, which is usually the best photos that come out of the shoot.
1: Well now you're taking a business degree a commerce degree specifically when you go to post-secondary yeah. uh, which will of course uh, last uh, through several career changes and that's probably a really <laughs> good decision right. but as uh, also while you're in school taking your business uh, increasing your business acumen you're obviously going to be Uh, following the photography thing on the side and a university environment from that point of view is a pretty fertile ground for that sort of
0: thing
2: right for sure yeah um a big a big point that my sister actually brought up recently is a lot of students um need uh kind of corporate style shots for their linkedin accounts and they don't want to go to um a photographer that's going to be uh super expensive and all of that right what i could do in the university environment is is set up um kind of one of those emulated studios again and schedule a few hours when I'd get maybe 20 people through and that way I'd be able to give it to them at a low cost uh, and even even there that's a big opportunity for sure.
1: And make a little walking around money while you're in school too. Money is pretty darn scarce when you're in university (laughs) I seem to recall. Uh, We did open the phone lines, let's include some of our listeners as we go forward in Parksville. Laurie, hello. Hi good morning. Uh, Your guest mentioned a photo editing program that he uses and I didn't catch the name of it.
2: The, the program is called Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. Uh, so it's a part of the, uh, the creative suite on, on Adobe. You can actually um, purchase it along with the full Photoshop for uh, about $10 a month. Uh, so it's not too expensive.
1: So it's Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. Light, yes. L-I-T-E?
2: Yes, the, uh, or L-I-G-H-T, just regular light. Oh, okay. As, as opposed to dark room, which was for film, Lightroom is for digital. Right. <laughs> Does
1: that help, You're Laurie? Really You're welcome. Uh, no problem at all. See, it, uh, so what's your go-to camera? Laurie wants to know what your go-to uh, Photoshop place is. What's your go-to camera? What, what do you pack around? Uh, you just it, oh man, I got I to stop and take a picture of that. Look at that. What are you? Ta- what are you? What are you carrying?
2: Well, my go-to camera body is a Nikon D750, um, which is really great in low-light scenarios, and it has a, a pretty fast uh, shooting mode for sports. It's a really great all-around camera. Um, many full-time wedding photographers use it just because it can capture so many different aspects. Um, but beyond just the body is really uh the lenses are often the most important part so uh i usually use a 50 millimeter f1.8 lens or an 85 millimeter f1.8 lens or if i'm not sure what i'm going to encounter i use a 24 to 120 millimeter f4 lens Uh, those are all nikon lenses okay Right,
1: and uh, you have to. You can. And uh, this shows my my ignorance here. You you have to use Nikon parts with a Nikon camera. You couldn't take a Canon lens and put it in a, a Nikon uh, camera, could you?
2: That's right, that you can't take a Canon lens and put it on a Nikon camera. But Sigma, which is a uh, another manufacturer, makes cameras and makes lenses, but also makes their lenses for Nikon cameras and Canon cameras. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, same with Tamron. So there is some
1: on. interchangeability. Then. Yes.
2: Yeah. But if you if you really like everything being the same, which I kind of do, uh, then typically people will buy a lot of um, kind of, if you have a Nikon camera, Nikon gear. Sure. It all matches the logos lineup and all that. Uh, but Sigma does have really great offerings at, at lower cost that will, you can buy a Nikon version or a Canon version or whatever you need.
1: So. I was looking at some of the trends and predictions for 2017 just by way of trying to get the heck up to speed with you, William. And one of the things I learned about, uh, one of the things, one of the trends that they're talking about is unfiltered. It seems right. that there was a filter craze over the past few years in which, I guess, as new filtering technology became available, everybody had to try it out, and suddenly everything was shot through some kind of filter. And and so this trend is the removal of most of that and getting back to basics. Does that make sense to you?
2: I think so, yeah. Like, what what we've seen in the past few years is a lot of photos that have so many filters stacked on them, they're barely recognizable as photos anymore. Exactly, yeah. They might as will be uh, paintings or anything at that point um, I think a big aspect of photography is being able to really capture in so much detail what's going on so then when you slap all these filters on then that kind of eliminates some of the uh, the magic of photography I think what people are trying to do now is really emulate um, or really represent what it actually looked like in the moment um, and really share with people for example what a particular uh, lake might look like mm-hmm. in the landscape and that kind of thing rather than stacking so much stuff on
1: got to ask you about drones do you play with that at all have you tried it I mean it's there's a new toy for photographers and videographers the likes of which they in, probably wouldn't have even imagine ten years ago yeah. have you tried it and does it work
2: I don't own a drone and I haven't tried one but I've seen a lot of different stuff with it but the problem is it's such a big trend and photographers have to really rush before they're illegal everywhere Of course, <laughs> Canada has a lot of different restrictions um, on them and of course that doesn't stop everybody but i was at yosemite national park um a couple years ago, and I was taking some photos, and there's these guys flo- um, flying these uh, two drones out over the landscape that I was taking a picture of uh, from a normal view. Mm-hmm. And uh, the park officials quickly came over and said, "You got to bring your drones back." They went so far that they were out of sight. It was crazy, but you can see a lot of cool things top-down views, right. which uh, you can't normally get even from a plane or a helicopter. It's difficult to get a top-down view. You're often getting kind of sideways, mm-hmm. so that's a really cool thing. Um, I wish I had a drone, um, <laughs> but with all the restrictions coming head, I don't know if it's the best investment at this point, but for landscapes, it really creates a a, definitely a really cool look.
1: Yeah, interesting. It's just all about perspective, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Starting, You're starting a small business. WilliamLozon.com is is the website. There's one advertising vehicle. Yes. Uh, You talked about your involvement with Facebook. I assume you have a Facebook page where you also display a lot of your stuff. Yeah. Uh, It's an incredibly competitive field, Mm -hmm. uh, full of people who want to do this for a living, and a lot of other people who would love to make it few bucks on the side yeah so where do you fit into all of that especially if you were uh, if you see in a career down the road you just sort of baby steps work your way into it slowly
2: yeah i think so and this is something that relates to every kind of field, but it's it's just so true, at least from my, what I've learned from my um, little bit of experience over the past few years, is that client satisfaction is always just the number one uh, priority, and it should be for photography. Yes. Um, because what I've especially seen uh, is how many referrals um, come from a particular photo shoot can easily turn into 20 other photo shoots mm-hmm. um, if the client is satisfied. Uh, I also read some research on that um, negative uh, client uh, feelings, they tend to share that a lot more with their friends yes. than positive feelings. Yes, that's true. So it's especially... If you're,
1: if you're unhappy about an experience, you really want everybody to know exactly. about it. Don't you repeat what I just did. Yeah. And if you're pleased with the, the same experience, you're happy about it, but you don't put the word out as aggressively exactly. as when you're mad.
2: Yeah, so I definitely want to always make sure my clients are super happy. And what I try to do is I try to provide what the clients really want. So for... um. All of my shoots, what I do is I provide them um, with all the fully edited, uh, full resolution digital files of the images. Okay. And if they would like to um, purchase prints, they can do that as well, but they're more than welcome to take all the digital files, use them wherever they want. They can print them if they want. Okay. A lot of more traditional photographers say, all right, here's a four by six, it's going to cost you $25. If you want an eight by 10, that's going to be $100. Right. All that kind of thing. Well, that
1: used to be where the markup came, right? Exactly. That was the profit margin. Yeah.
2: But but now it's... You'll get so many more clients by giving them really what they want. And with social media and everything, to have those full resolution digital files, that's definitely uh, where things are moving. So I consider myself to be slightly ahead of the curve there because I was never stuck in the traditional side of things because I'm so young. So I just jumped right into the game giving all digital files. And I think that um, really leads to client satisfaction.
1: Okay, interesting yeah. stuff. Well, I wish you considerable success with this venture. You're certainly a committed uh, person to this 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 craft, and uh, uh, your energy is contagious, and your knowledge is impressive. It's been a real pleasure having you come by and uh, and catch us up to speed with a, a a very important update for especially those of us who we've been distracted by the phone. Well, yeah. I don't have to worry about photography anymore. i got a cell phone, you know, no problem, and a gallery. So I'm done. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, and that you may be, but there's this whole thing to photography that's still going on and mm-hmm. captivating millions of people. So uh, I hope you've answered a, a few questions for uh, for our listeners today. You've certainly been a treat to have on the program. Thanks for coming by.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor to be here. Well, sure. good to yeah. have you. William
1: <laughs> Lozon, and his last name is L-A-U-Z-O-N, com and that's uh, the photography website and that'll get you at least involved a little bit in what our guest is up to and uh, and how you can contact him there's a contact thing just click on that and uh, you'll get right to him thanks for coming by thank you we're back with more right after this well, once again, many thanks to William Lozon for a very interesting and, in my case at least, much overdue update on photography technology and techniques. And thanks for the calls as well. Time now for a steel report. And today, Linda has a look at the Robin Hood flower recall.
0: I'm Linda Steele, and this is your Steele Report. If you use the Robin Hood brand of flour, you may want to double-check when the bag expires. The recall of 10-kilogram bags of flour initially came down last month for BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. But as Chris Galish from Global News reports, that recall has now been extended to all of Canada.
1: The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says the recall was triggered during an investigation into a foodborne illness outbreak.
0: In late March, the public health agency reported 25 cases of E. coli infection in B.C., Saskatchewan, Alberta and Newfoundland and Labrador, people who had eaten the flour. There have been no deaths, but at least six people have required hospital care. Most of those who got sick were men around the age of 24. The bags affected expire on April seventeenth of next year and have a UPC code of zero five nine, triple zero, zero one six five two eight. If you do find a bag of flour in your home, you should toss it out or return it to the grocery store for a refund. I'm Linda Steele, and that's your Steele report.
1: Thank you, Linda. Steele and Drex, weekday afternoons two to six right here on News Talk 980 CKNW. A couple more consumer quickies before we go. Fresh survey numbers from the folks at Nielsen this week. Breakfast is often said to be the most important meal of the day. How many times did your mom tell you that? But when and where Canadians eat breakfast is changing as time-starved individuals and families rush out the door to start their day. Today, only 15% of Canadians eat breakfast at home, with the majority of people eating on the go, Instead, 30% of breakfast meals are obtained from a drive-thru, which, as you'd expect, is having an adverse effect on the staple breakfast categories. The $1 billion-plus cereal category has declined more than 1% of sales over the last year, and while that may not seem like much, it represents more than $10 million in lost sales those Canadians who do prepare their first meal of the day at home are looking for convenience and are spending little time in the kitchen, and home consumers search for an instant solution that will satisfy their demand for a healthy and tasty quick meal. Prep time is a key differentiating factor for consumers when making breakfast at home, with the vast majority of us, 80%, favoring an option that'll take less than 15 minutes to prepare. Across Canada, only 2% of consumers devote 30 minutes minutes or more to breakfast. With retailers in Canada facing declining visits and spending, understanding when and where Canadians consume breakfast will help retailers and manufacturers ensure they're reaching the right consumers with the right product to fit into their busy schedules. 30 minutes for breakfast indeed. No wonder only 2% of us do that. That's an extra half hour's sleep. KFC promises to ditch it to its antibiotic-laden chicken. It'll still be deep-fried, but KFC wants to make its chicken a little healthier. KFC promising on Friday that by the end of next year, the company will only serve chicken that was raised without potentially dangerous antibiotics, joining a growing list of fast food companies that have made food supply changes aimed at drawing in health-conscious eaters. KFC is among the largest bio of chicken in the United States, according to a press release from the Public Interest Research Group, and that's why the group thinks KFC's newfound commitment to only buy antibiotic-free chicken will push chicken farmers nationwide to ditch their use of antibiotics completely. KFC's commitment follows similar measures taken by Subway and Taco Bell last year and Chick-fil-A and Chipotle years before. They've had long-standing commitments not to Serve chicken raised with potentially harmful antibiotics. McDonald also now serves 100% antibiotic-free chicken, as does A&W. So the industry continues to make changes, however slowly. And that is our program for this week. Thanks to producer Ben Dooley and to Chris Brentlinger-Grant at the Controls for the great ride. And thank you for your calls. Join us again next Sunday at 11 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer. And stay tuned for Charmaine De Silva after the news to noon on CKNW. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980.